Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafzal. I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, so today we have a very special podcast yet again uh, with Jeyu Nakajima from Evercore ISI. Jeyu, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Mars. Let's go straight to it. Um, we are talking a little bit earlier, but generally, and I think also fits with EFG's view, is that we're you know, starting to get or have been... Uh, constructive on on Japan, Japan stock market, the Japanese economy. Uh, maybe you can talk about your your thoughts on 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 why you are constructive. I have a lot more questions than answers today, so <laughs> <laughs> hopefully I can pick your brain later. But um, as I go through the list of reasons that I'm still constructive on Japan, I have nine and a half reasons. Wow, okay, you'll see why it's a half. Right. It's not a full reason. Um, but I would say I have to start with earnings. So for the third quarter, we're looking at 60% uh, increase in earnings. That's not even off of the, the low base. Uh, the low base in Japan was actually uh, 2Q. So earnings are continuing to grow. Uh, as I'll talk about it later, the companies I speak to, they continue to say it's been great. Um, margins probably will be at a record high, even though it's still sort of... Um, six to seven percent range so margins are lower than in the u.s but compared to history it's still at a record high the second reason is reopening uh so japan along with most asian countries have been sort of on the conservative side of reopening um they are however starting to really reopen so uh, I think it was this Monday that Japan opened its border to tra- uh, business travelers. Uh, it's still hard to, to sort of enter fully without quarantine. You still have to quarantine for three days. Uh, but the idea is there are reopening. And I, I expect tourism to resume uh, at some point at 1Q of 2022. Um, so that will happen. 84% of those over the age of 12 are vaccinated. So uh, there shouldn't be uh, trouble there. I think what they're waiting for for uh, foreign tourists is um, the therapeutics. I think once you have the oral medication uh, and you can minimize hospitalizations, I think uh, politicians will be much more um, aggressive about reopening. And then, of course, we can. the third reason is global expansion. Uh, and I would put supply chain easing and inventory restocking around the world to to be part of this global expansion story but uh, as I've talked about in the last 18 months uh, whenever global growth is strong that is a sweet spot for Japanese equities it's done uh, very very well uh, then we do have a change in, in the political leader uh, leadership so we do have Prime Minister Kishida who is not very charismatic uh, or certainly not as charismatic as Mr. Abe was, uh, but he seems to be somewhat popular. We just got a headline that he's, I think, 61% approval rating, which is okay. Um, but the, the main takeaway here is he won the election uh, in late October. He does have another upper house election coming up next summer, which I think he should be able to win. So we're looking at a uh, long-term um political stability in Japan, which is always um, not, uh, not a given in Japan. Right? Revolving door politics is always a risk in Japan, but I think that's pretty low. Um, 
we do have fiscal stimulus coming. I think there's some discussion of the size and what it'll be, but I expect about 30 trillion uh, yen. Uh, so that that's fiscal news is never a big positive for equities, but you certainly have more of an economic boost in 2022. The yen is at a competitive level. Uh, I would say most companies I talk to say 110 is more than competitive. From here, the reasons start to get a little bit uh, less interesting or more controversial, but inflation expectations are actually increasing in Japan, even in Japan, I would say. Um, if you look at, and it's not showing up in the in the core, uh, sorry, consumer price measures, but it's showing up in everywhere else. So if you look at survey measures, like small business survey, uh, selling price is an all-time high. The PPI, which was out yesterday, was up 8% year over year, which is pretty much a record uh, pace of increase. Um, break-evens uh, are at, at a multi-year high. So even in Japan, um, inflation expectations are, are starting to increase, and we sort of expect that as the yen has weakened and commodity prices have surged. So that's not a surprise, but uh, it is a surprise in Japan. Because, you know, there's just a lot of inertia to move expectations. Um, I will put one of the reasons as most people are still very, very underweight Japan. Um, so here's a quick um, couple numbers. Foreign investors who are basically the, the market makers in Japan, uh, they've been net sellers of Japanese equities every year for, from 2015 to 2020. So they sold about 25 trillion yen in Japanese equities. This year, they're finally a net buyer, small net buyer. So they bought back about 3 trillion yen, but it's still sort of very, very small relative to what they've sold in the last five years. Um, and then it goes into my half reason to be constructive on Japan. Um, it does seem that investor sentiment meant on Chinese securities, Chinese investments have soured quite a bit, at least in the U.S. Uh, some in the hedge fund community have talked about maybe Japan will be the prime beneficiary of that fund flows. Um, just being close to um, being in Asia, having a lot of business exposure to China, but not investing in Chinese companies. So um, I, I see an argument on both sides. That's, that's why I put it as a half a reason. Um, but those are nine and a half reasons <laughs> that I can think of today. Well, they're all, quite frankly, very, very, very good reasons. Um, so I'm going to challenge you on a couple of them, right? So, uh -huh. so we can, yes. we can, uh, so we can discuss. So, um, uh, obviously, earnings growth. I completely agree with you. You know, um, that looks pretty strong and certainly validates uh, our own thinking around earnings growth. And this is going to be pretty powerful. For those of you who don't know, Japanese companies you know, um, depreciate a lot faster than, than many other countries uh, do or corporates do in uh, around the world. And that obviously means that when growth picks up, they have this huge, uh -huh. huge leverage benefit on, on earnings. But it does mean they're a little bit more cyclical than they would otherwise be uh, because of that um, that kind of practice. So, yeah, I certainly would, would agree with you on, on earnings. On the global expansion, maybe one issue 
that I can see, and certainly we're seeing that now, is that with the slowdown in China, how much is are Japanese companies, you know, um, uh, you know, exporting to 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 China, and will a slowdown there have an impact on on their, uh, you know, on their growth? It, it definitely does, and I think this is why the Nikkei has been trading sideways. Is concerns over China, especially the zero COVID um, threshold for for the virus in China. I think that's weighing on sentiment in, for for Japan. Um, it's really hard to sort of look at macro data on how much China growth contributes to Japan because you talked about exports, but I would say most companies, most manufacturing companies um, that are large enough to build scale already have production in China. So, you know, exports is, is only a certain segment of profit contribution in China. Um, so you look at things like overseas earnings, uh, for some, it's already 70, 80% of total revenues are overseas. My sort of educated guess based on talking to companies is somewhere around 40% to 45% of total profits in Japan are overseas. And I would say I would attribute half of that to China or China related. Mm. Um, so, you know, you can think of it as 20%. Now, the other 20% is, of course, the U.S. and Europe, uh, uh, which are doing really, really well. Um, so my sense is the strength in the U.S. and Europe will offset, uh, maybe not completely offset, but it will offset some of the weakness in China. Now, the other sort of big driver, certainly in the last you know, decade or 15 years, well, decade or so, maybe a bit longer, has been tourism in, in Japan. And, you know, you mentioned um, tourism kind of opening up. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? Again, Chinese tourists are obviously big contributors to um, to, uh, to to Japanese tourism. Um, any thoughts there? Do you think this is a, it's a slower path of improvement rather than a, a, a big improvement? I think so. I think so. So... I think the, I sort of think of this as a three-step uh, process. So the first step is um, the, the reviving domestic tourism. So uh, last year, Prime Minister Suga had this program called Go to Travel, where the government subsidizes a lot of your, your travel spending for local citizens. So if you go spend $300 at a hotel, the government basically picks up half of that. Um, so it was a very effective um, way to revive tourism uh, because of COVID uh, it was sort of put on hold but the latest news is maybe that will resume it in February so I think next spring you should start to see domestic tourism start to recover um, and then as I said I think um, the foreign tourists will start to come in to Japan maybe uh, early next year that will be the second part but it doesn't seem like China will be part of that 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 step. Um, so far, the the way the law is written is if you're vaccinated uh, with um, basically American and European vaccines, then then you can quarantine for three days. But anything else, you still cannot come into to Japan. So I think the next rule is either um, relax that that rule or. Um, as we have therapeutics, everybody will be uh, a lot 
allowed to come into Japan. So I think your characterization of slow reopening, slow normalization is probably the right guess. In terms of the um, political leadership, obviously there's been a change. Anything that is different in this kind of policy um, cycle compared to, you know, the last few years? So Mr. Shida has gotten a lot of negative press on his economic policies. Mainly it's that he doesn't have one or, um, and, uh, or if he does have one, it's, uh, not market friendly. So he talked about, he floated the idea of raising capital gains tax early on his campaign. My read on the situation is it's mostly political. So you've had Mr. Abe and Suga who was in power for almost a decade. And everybody got a little bit tired of Abenom. So he needed some a fresher idea. So mm. the quickest way to do that is sort of refute Abenomics. And if you think about Abenomics, it was a trickle-down story, right? You, you increased corporate profits that should trickle down to wages. That, that never happened. So Mr. Kishida focused on, okay, let's to think about distribution um, or, and redistribution of income and wealth. And that's where that cap gains idea came from. Of course, the foreign investor community hated it. Um, so he had to backtrack on that. Um, but I think um, in the last two, three months, what we're learning is Shida uh, san is not too serious about that distribution idea. It's more distribution only we have only after we have some satisfactory economic growth uh which is i think the right uh stance to take and i think you'll see in the the latest fiscal stimulus there will be some aspect aspect of that stimulus that will focus on growing japan's economy again uh, but i i again i don't expect policy to be a sort of a decisive sentiment changer uh, under Kishida-san. In terms of the fiscal stimulus, where do you think it will be focused? Obviously, uh, you know, in the in the kind of UK, US, it's kind of infrastructure and climate, obviously, in, in Europe. Um, any particular focus in, in Japan? The first one is the sort of going back to this redistribution idea. So there will be some... Uh, cash handout program for lower income families as well as anybody under the age of 12 i believe will get a thousand dollars um so that's being floated around uh again we we've japan has done these things in the past and they really don't have much of a multiplier um (laughs) so they get it and they spend and that's pretty much it um the other things you, you mentioned the climate change. So that is a, that is one factor. Um, that is one aspect of it that I can expect to see. The other is also, um, uh, digital transformation or what they call DX. Uh, Japan is, uh, somewhat ironic that it, it's very technologically advanced, but they still have a lot of things paper-based mm. and, uh, uh, the government and so, keenly aware of that problem that they're trying to invest more in digitizing uh, a lot of things so i expect more fiscal stimulus on that so less infrastructure uh type like in the u.s uh but more on digitalization you know a lot of discussion recently about 
semiconductors and Taiwan and the China relationship. And uh, and there's obviously a lot of talk about um, Taiwan Semi opening up a plant in, in Japan uh-huh. um, and as sort of uh, the supply chain of semis broadens out. What's your... What you're thinking on that, and what are the latest thoughts or news coming from Japan itself? Yeah, I, I find it actually quite interesting, and it's not just when you start to see TSMC and Sony uh, building a factory. You know, it's not it's beyond commerce, and there is a, a geopolitical angle to it. So, um, I think I shared this with you maybe previously, but when I visited companies in Taiwan, maybe 2019 or uh, pre, pre-COVID. And, you know, this idea of geopolitical risk and how they think about long-term strategies given the rise of China politically in the region, it is something that was very clear. Uh, it's certainly been clear in Japan, but it was I picked up the similar sentiment in, in Taiwan. So... That's a long way of saying I do expect similar uh, types of regional enforcement, but ex-China to continue. Uh, supply chains in Asia will continue to develop and redevelop, but less focused on China and more outside of China. So it could include Japan, Southeast Asia. Um, that's a that's a general theme. Um, in this particular case of semis, uh, it um, the fact that Japan wasn't really uh, fab heavy made sense to build that new uh, facility in Japan. Uh, but generally speaking, I do expect more of supply chain diversification in Asia, including uh, Japan. Obviously, when when you and I uh, and actually Daniel traveled, you know, uh, in uh, Tokyo and and seeing companies, the the sense we always got is kind of you know the robotics part continues to be one of the big drivers and and uh, very interested recently to see you know companies like Kians you know finding itself finally into the Nikkei. How are the kind of corporate champions? Are they still very much around the robotics areas? You know what new corporate champions do you think are kind of developing? And maybe associated question is how is that then filtering itself into the weightings into the indices as well? Uh-huh. I would say robotics is still um, a key area for Japan. Um, that's where they have comparative advantage still. And I think that will, I think innovation will continue in that space. And again, I, I think I talked about this to, to the reason why the Japanese companies need robotics is less from a cost perspective and it's more from the labor shortage perspective. So in an aging society where the labor force is shrinking, so predictably shrinking, um, the role of robotics is really, really important. Uh, so the, the need and demand for robotics is actually quite different from Japanese companies as opposed to American companies. Uh, the other so obviously the auto industry, uh, electric vehicles. Um, and on this one, there have been Japan uh, OEMs were quite quite late uh, enjoying the EV boom. But uh, to, my cre- to their credit, they're actually catching up. Um, 
quite clearly. So I think Subaru just announced they have a, a new EV model for the global market. Um, so that will continue to be uh, actually a capex driver in Japan, especially in the battery front. So you know, again, going back to the survey of Japanese companies, most manufacturing companies have a bigger budget for fiscal 2022. Uh, a lot of it is because of EV-related investments. Um, so that's that's another one. And then, of course, 5G uh, investment will be uh, key. Now, I think that's not unique to Japan. I think that's really a global phenomenon. Um, it remains to be seen how Japan will position itself in that uh, in that battle, but. I think those two, the first two, uh, robotics and EVs, I think they will be quite competitive. Just going back to the labor shortage, obviously, you, you and I have discussed this at length for many years um, about immigration and the need to immigrate. Any kind of changes there? It's, kind of, it's, all, it's always been glacial, but there were signs that it started to pick up. Has that changed at all uh, in, in any shape? If anything, because of COVID, I guess it's gone backwards. It's gone backwards a little bit during COVID, but I do think this is a little bit different from in the past. So I can just give you a quick anecdote. I think during the financial crisis of 2009, you know, there were Japanese Brazilians that came in to work in Japan at factories. And I believe during that crisis, uh, they were sort of sent back to Brazil. Uh, and there haven't been any sort of there hasn't been any coverage of uh, stories like that uh, during this this time. And I think it speaks to the structural shortage of labor in Japan. Um, I think one thing that Japan has made a lot of progress on is in the last 10 years is this recognition that they really are running out of labor uh, and they have to, whether they like it or not, uh, they just have to rely on foreign labor. So, you know, after you know, COVID, uh, whenever the pandemic is over, I think the influx of foreign workers will continue. Uh, it's also interesting when I talked about reopening the border, uh, one of the first things they did is to have foreign students come into Japan and foreign workers come into Japan. So, again, it, 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 it is an indication that the mindset has shifted. But again, it is a slow process. Well, I guess associated with that is obviously land and property prices outside of the, the main cities. Um, has there been kind of any redevelopment plans or any plans to to change that? Or we're still going to see vast parts of the country just being deserted? It is a little bit of here and there. I still, I still see there's, there's some scattered reports about densification away from Tokyo and I've heard anecdotes about people moving away or at least having a second home outside of Tokyo we really haven't seen that in data uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to make that this is going to be an ongoing trend um, but I, I would say this past really 40 years um, there's only been one city that has been gaining share, which is Tokyo, right? This is why when you go to Tokyo, it looks always vibrant and mm. the city looks like it's growing. Yeah. Uh, but when you step out for two hours from Tokyo, you don't see that. Mm. Um, I, I just don't get the sense that the reverse is going to trend 
uh, the, the, the trend is going to reverse that much, um, but it might slow the pace of it. And it's always fascinating because I, I think it's very rarely in history we've seen this where you know people are moving into the bigger cities because of healthcare and being closer to your you know siblings and your and your family um and often you know if you travel to rural areas in japan you can see this hollowing out of just empty houses as uh, people have left or unfortunately passed away uh and there's no one to to come to those homes it's uh and i personally witnessed this quite a bit when i've traveled in japan and it's uh, uh-huh. at some level it's shocking surprising and quite sad really you know uh that uh this kind of hollowing out is, uh, you know, is so is so prevalent. Uh, it's yeah. it's amazing for such a sophisticated economy. Yeah, it it is a it is a sad. And I saw this one startup company that actually basically these are abandoned homes, and they gain legal ownership of these abandoned homes, and they sell put them on the market for like three thousand yeah. uh, dollars. Yeah. And I'm not sure what kind of utility you'll get out of these abandoned homes, but there seems to be some volume uh, to justify the kind of business. Right, interesting. One of the questions um, that we often get is around kind of activism around, you know, Japan. Any sort of thoughts around how this may play out? Yeah, so activism is an interesting area. And I have to say it's been, it, it has not been 100% success. There, For every, I would say, one success story, there are probably two failures. Mm-hmm. So signaling is still quite weak. Uh, what I've been telling privately to my government contacts is um, you can do a lot with that corporate governance theme, not just by rewriting governance codes, but Japan has this unique tool called GPIF, which is the world's largest uh, pension fund in the world. So they could allocate more money to activist funds. And when you have GPF assets involved, it's really, really hard for company CEOs to say, no, we're not, we're not doing that. They have to at least consider these decisions and actions more seriously. So I've pitched that idea for now about a couple of years, but I think there's room there to be able to do. I do think they have already allocated some money to activist funds, uh, but you could sort of do more there. Mm. That's a very interesting point in terms of unlocking that nascent value that's uh, sitting in a lot of those uh, Japanese corporates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it counters what BOJ has done also, right? BOJ, you could see them as a passive, passive investor, correct? Passive yes. investor. Yeah. So you can counter that aspect by getting gps involved obviously always look kind of like to to end the podcast maybe something new something different with respect to the market any sort of areas industry wise that you think we should really take a look at um in japan you know over the next kind of three to five years that look particularly exciting from a from a kind of global perspective so this is a less of a, uh, I have two comments on this. This is less of a sector um, pick, but I have seen a lot of um, interesting startups as well as, you know, if you think about the elites in Japanese universities, so those that went to University of Tokyo, uh, Kyoto University, 
Kale Waseda. I would say the top of the top of the class would be draw, drawn to uh, positions in the government. That was sort of where the elites went mm. uh, traditionally. And I would say in the last ten years, when you look at surveys of college graduates where they want to go, are consulting or startups. So this. Um, I was a little bit skeptical of this uh, startup or entrepreneur um, spirit reviving in Japan. I, I was a bit skeptical of that uh, uh, boom uh, of those stories, but I think that is actually happening. And some of our clients have done very well identifying these uh, new companies uh, in Japan. And, uh, I think the problem with these companies in Japan tend to be the scalability in Japan. Uh, they operate in Japan and they can only operate in Japan. But you know, to keep in mind, Japan is still uh, a big enough economy where um, that scalability issue won't kick in until uh, quite a bit down the road. So that's something that I would probably keep an eye on. Uh, the other thing on the market is, despite uh, great earnings and margins, uh, despite great fundamentals on the macro side. Investor sentiment um, is negative to an extreme level, uh, in my perspective. And here's a good anecdote. So uh, a friend of mine who's a client participated in this call this past week, and it was hosted by a CEO of a large brokerage firm. And this guy happens to speak English. So there's about roughly 60 to 70 people on the call. Usually I heard in the latest call, there were only two people. Wow. Gosh. I mean, it's, it's, um, when I heard that I, I said, this is just sort of extreme, uh, level of not pessimism. It's just, uh, uninterested in Japan. Um, which is, you know, the contrarian in me would say, well, that's great from a positioning perspective. Uh, but it does seem like people aren't really paying attention to the finer developments that are happening in Japan, uh, including the, the demographics you mentioned, uh, some of the corporate governance issues that have come up. It's interesting you say that point, and something you and I discussed the, the Nikkei in sterling terms or the Nikkei in dollar terms is, you know, is at all-time highs, right? Um, uh-huh. Which uh, I, I, uh, we discussed it. I think we are probably the only people who have actually picked that up. <laughs> to, <laughs> right. I, I have not seen anyone else, you know, in any sort of, you know, Wall Street magazine or newspaper or, you, you know, Financial Times. It's just no one's mentioned it. And uh, I know. That, that, that to me is actually quite an interesting, you know, thought um, uh-huh. oh, uh, to suggest that how disinterest, distri- disinterested people are. And in uh-huh. the end, as we know, it just needs a small flow then to really start making a big difference in terms right. of... Um, in terms of performance of, of Japanese uh, stocks? Yeah, I'm very reluctant to share this following statistic, but I will, in, in, in that uh, spirit, if you look at the 10-year track record of the Nikkei, um, you know, Europe has returned about 5% per annum this past decade. The S&P has returned 15%. 
And I think Japan is the next one at 14%. Oh, wow. So okay. it, 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 it local currency. So yeah. it feels like it hasn't done anything. Yeah, but yeah. actually it's kept pace with, with the US yeah, and when you compare that to sentiment it just feels like 100 to 0. 0.5 yeah, exactly yeah yeah. <laughs> that's, I, actually I hadn't I hadn't picked that up but that's actually a really interesting I guess base effects always play a bit of a sure. place in that yeah that's right but, that's right but, that's but, why yeah. I'm reluctant to yeah, share that exactly <laughs> so uh, so you know having been you know you, if you've been overweight J Japan for for 10 years hasn't actually cost you that much. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's interesting. right. Very, yeah. very and, interesting. And actually, if you've done it in dollars, you could have also um, done well in the currency as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Well, Jay, um, thanks again very much for, for your time. It's uh, an absolute honor, pleasure to, Thank you to, very much. Uh, to Thank have you, you on the podcast. And obviously, Thank you. Um, you know, stay in touch, keep in touch with us. And, uh, Thank you. And we'll do. We will. Uh, we'll hopefully speak to you again uh, soon. So uh, yes. take care and thank you. Thank you. So that you. Ra that wraps us up for uh, the podcast uh, today, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again uh, next time. Thank you. Mm -hmm.